Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This week, the Calder Fire has been threatening the resort town of South Lake Tahoe. It made a run that only two fires ever have, crossing the Sierras from the western side to the east. The other fire to have done so? The Dixie Fire, which is still burning away to the north. But while these two massive blazes are unprecedented in some ways, they are not in others. Today, we're going to check in with different people around Northern California who've been forced to evacuate or are helping vulnerable people to do so as well as others who've had to rebuild their lives and homes after previous devastating fires. That's all next on Forum, after this news. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. Packing an emergency go bag is advice every Californian is familiar with. But what happens when you actually have to evacuate? Residents of cities and towns across California have been learning these hard lessons as the state grapples with numerous wildfires. Tens of thousands of people have had to evacuate from wildfires this year as we experience another record-setting season thanks to years of fire suppression and forest mismanagement and climate change. Many evacuees are not even long-term residents, but people who move to rural areas to get some relief from the other conflagration, the COVID-19 pandemic. As this is an ongoing crisis that's still changing hour to hour, I'm going to have KQED reporter Raquel Marie Dillon with me throughout the show to help us sort through the news from the front. Welcome, Raquel. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So tell us where you are and give us the latest news from the front this morning. Well, right now I am in a hotel in Carson City, Nevada. Um, But I did tune into the uh, morning briefing for firefighters this morning to sort of get a sense of uh, the status of the fire. And um, they sounded cautiously optimistic. They use those words. They say the fire has turned a corner um, thanks to some favorable weather. And uh, they are focused on the east side of the fire and beginning to lift evacuation orders on the west side of the fire. I mean, it seemed like two days ago, South Lake Tahoe Tahoe was right in the crosshairs of the fire and the winds were all setting up to sort of blow the fire right to it. What really changed? Was it the wind? Were they able to like set the right kind of lines to prevent the advance of the flames? Um, This fire was driven by those red flag warning winds. Um, uh, it, It just blasted its way across the 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 sierra and uh yeah south lake tahoe was in big trouble there there were a couple of things that kept it safe first and foremost the hard work of the firefighters um second i've spoken to several fire officials who credit the uh work uh clearing brush and ladder fuels that means the dead branches on the bottom parts of the pine trees around here mm-hmm. um it, from the forests around south lake tahoe and myers um and uh but mostly it's just that the winds died down and the uh, a little bit of humidity has returned um just this past night but they are still worried about embers flying over the containment lines that the crews worked so hard to cut um, and and igniting spot fires. How has the Calder fire been different from other major fires up there? Are there actually any historical analogs for a fire like this up there? Um, Yes, there was the Angora fire recently. And a lot of people who've lived in South Lake Tahoe refer to that um, as like sort of a wake-up call in the sense that 
they realized that that area could burn. Um, the fire marshal of the Tahoe Douglas Fire uh, District told me a couple days ago that they used to look at the um, the forests around South Lake Tahoe as asbestos forests. He used that word, and I was like, what? What he meant was they thought this area could never burn because the trees were so green and, um, you know, we were going through several decades of uh, uh, wet weather. And, you know, some of us skied the powder those years and it was great. Um, we're not in that anymore. Uh, climate scientists say that this is going to be, you know, the, one of maybe the wettest year going forward for a long time. And we need to brace ourselves and understand this change. And he's and um, the fire marshal said that their mindset has changed. They see the flammable forest around them, and they're working really hard to um, address that with, uh, you know, fuels treatment. The firefighters use all these terms, but basically, what it means is clearing out some of the flammable material, fuels. It just means vegetation and trees and branches and grass, okay. and um, uh, to protect homes and also to keep the fire um, away from the city of South Lake Tahoe. How are the firefighters doing up there? I mean, they've been going from blaze to blaze, and now, you know, they've got a lot of work to do uh, protecting structures up there. Yeah. Um, I've talked to several crews, hand crews, uh, heavy equipment operators. Um, they're exhausted. Uh, some of them went from the Dixie Fire. I talked to a crew yesterday that had been right there in that town that burned down. And you could just see when I brought that up, you could just see the exhaustion in this, um, you know, squad boss's eyes and how he was on that fire for 28 days, he said, and uh, had been cleared out of Greenville several times because of the danger to his crew. And he just felt that as a defeat um, because they want to save people's homes. They, they want to do their jobs well. And against these wind conditions and against this historic uh, uh, dryness in the forest and drought, they just, it's just a struggle. It's just really hard yeah. to do. Raquel, you're going to stick with us for the hour. Uh, we want to hear from our listeners too. Are you currently evacuated from your home and somewhere in our listening area? Have you lived through wildfire and how did you cope with that? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to add Mike Perrone to our conversation. He's the editor and content director of the Tahoe Tribune News, and he evacuated from South Lake Tahoe on Monday. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So can you set the scene for yourself uh, in South Lake Tahoe when you got the evacuation order? Wow, what a what a blur. <laughs> it was pretty wild, to say the least. Uh, we were prepping ourselves for something we did not want to do. Uh, the evacuation order for our area, specifically where my home is located, was given out uh, about Monday around 11 a.m. Uh, just prior to that, a day before, I was helping friends evacuate out of the Myers and North Upper Truckee area uh, on that Sunday. So I had gone through it with some friends, evacuating them, got the order ourselves on Monday, and it was quite the scramble. It took over the entire town of uh, the city of South Lake Tahoe, and getting out of town was quite brutal. Uh, it took some people up to three, three and a half hours. It took us personally about an hour and a half to get through town. Um, so, you know, a big shout out to all of the crews that managed that process. So, you know, we always wondered what it would look like for a mass exodus like that. And um, we, we experienced it full fledged. As you were sitting in your house, did you know what you were going to take with you already? Did you have all the documents ready to go? Or do you just like, oh, God, we got to go grab stuff? You know, luckily it wasn't as close and abrupt as the Angora fire. So we had days to think about it as we were sitting in our homes in sort of a smoke lockdown. It was very reminiscent to COVID where you were almost scared to open your door. 
you know, to let a virus in. Instead, this time it was smoke. So we had a lot of time indoors rather than what we love to do while we live in Lake Tahoe and be out recreating. We had time to think about it. So, yes, we had the go bags prepped. We had the big items on our mind. And, you know, once the order was given uh, to evacuate, uh, it took us, you know, about an hour and a half to load up the trailer and be actually wheels turning on the ground. Do you know anybody um, who decided to stick it out? I do. Uh, I know uh, a a few people, actually. And, um, you know, it's a mixed bag of emotions. Um, You know, at first you're saying, wow, okay, this person's doing it. I wonder why they're there. And then I come to find out even last night, they're they're sort of getting raked over the coals for irresponsibility um, and, you know, uh, and not obeying the mandates that were given to the residents so it's it's that it's that catch-22 where you can technically defy these evacuation orders but that is not recommended whatsoever and it puts a lot of people at risk a lot of the first responders if something were to happen to those people they've got to devote resources uh to that person so you know a lot of people are calling it irresponsible uh, but yeah i mean there are people that have done it that that's for sure yeah. Were you worried about your actual house burning down? You know, I initially gave it a 2% chance um, of making it over the crest. And as you had mentioned in the opening uh, bit here, this is the second time it's ever happened. I, I did not think it would cross into the Tahoe Basin at all. So uh, I quickly adjusted that percentage to about 10% as we saw it speed up. But one one day it's... Uh, it, it managed to travel about uh, two and a half to three miles uh, in, in distance towards us. That was a very scary day. Uh, so that's, of course, when that percentage jumped up. I saw how they were moving and sort of pushing the fire to the south of Myers and the city of South Lake Tahoe. And they gave us a little comfort once they could back up against some of the structures, get a little bit more, um, you know, basically structure themselves in a plan and, and gave us a little bit more comfort but then spot fires popped up we had some spot fires run in between the angora burn scar and the north upper Truckee neighborhood and that was very close to our house so it was it was a roller coaster of emotions that you're going through you think you're safe and then you're not in in a matter of an hour you know a half a day how do you think the community up there responded wow they uh I, i think they responded in great fashion a lot of people banded together. Like I said, I was helping out friends Sunday and then it was sort of a, a leapfrog effect. Then I had friends asking me if I needed help evacuating that were over on the Nevada side, over in Glenbrook and the Lake Ridge Zephyr Cove area that hadn't got the evacuation order yet. So it was, you know, phones were lighting up and text messages, calls saying, how can we help? What can we do? And that's on a one-to-one basis, right? And then you've got the businesses rallying around the first responders, donating meals, uh, the casinos putting up, uh, you know, first responders as well. So what, what a, you know, heartwarming and scary time all at the same, in the same breath. We're talking about the Calder fire with evacuees and what happens after. We're joined now by Raquel Marie Dillon, reporter with KQED News, who's covering the fire. We have Mike Perone, an editor and content director at the Tahoe Tribune News, and who was evacuated from South Lake Tahoe on Monday. And we want to hear from you. Are you currently evacuated from your home? Have you lived through one of these wildfires that's come through in the last few years? How did you cope with the aftermath? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And, of course, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the evacuations from the Calder Fire, which has been threatening South Lake Tahoe. And we're joined by Raquel Maria Dillon, reporter with KQED News, who's covering the Calder Fire. And I want to add into our conversation Devin Middlebrook, the mayor pro tem of South Lake Tahoe. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Devin, what are you up to in the city? Like, what role do you have to play in a big emergency like this? Yeah, so right now I'm actually at Harris Casino in the Emergency Operations Center with uh, the National Guard, Highway Patrol, um, various fire departments, our local police, and our city staff. And they're all very busy working away, tracking the fire, staying up to date with uh, the fire's progress, and working on our emergency declaration and being able to start planning on getting people home once they can get the fire under control and getting information out to all of our residents that have evacuated and are spread um, really probably all throughout the country right now and making sure that they know what's going on uh, at their at their homes and, and when they can come home. Yeah. Do you think that the community of South Lake Tahoe has been changed by the pandemic and so many newcomers? And if so, do you think that that changed the way the evacuation went? Because it's not people like yourself who were born and raised in Tahoe. Yeah, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic over the last year and a half has definitely been a lot of up and downs for our community from all of the travel restrictions and shutdowns that have impacted our local residents to, as you alluded to, the increase in new residents that moved from folks from areas like the Bay Area. But I do think that we've done a good job of educating people throughout the year on evacuations and preparedness. We had the Calder fire. Luckily, it didn't start in the Tahoe Basin. So there was, as Mike Perrin was saying, there was a little bit of time to prepare. And the smoke impacts from from that fire and and the other fires like the Dixie Fire really had people alert and ready and and planned, uh, you know, in the last several weeks. Uh, So they they were prepped and ready to go when those evacuation orders came down. So we've heard earlier uh, about the Angora fire, uh, fire, recent fire that was uh, in, in the area and you just referenced as well. What are the um, kind of similarities and, and differences as you see them? Yeah, I still remember uh, where I was when the Angora fire started. I was at the beach and saw the big plume of smoke in the, the direction of my home and was like, um, I should probably go home. So that fire was um, something that was extremely devastating to our community. Uh, in 2007, and we lost um, hundreds of structures and lots of people lost their homes. But I think it made us in the Tahoe Basin very aware of what wildfires could do. Uh, so since that 2007, there's been aggressive work by many of the, the partners in the basin, including the city, Forest Service, Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, Tahoe Conservancy, among many others, to really have our, our forest treated. There's been lots of uh, wild uh, wildland inner urban and urban interface treatments to keep those neighborhoods buffered from the forest, lots of dispensable space. So it's something that um, we as a community really learned from the Angora fire. And I think that's helped us be more prepared for the situation we find ourselves in today. So going forward, what's the city council really going to work on in terms of you know recovering and also uh, preparing for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the city council is going to have a lot of work ahead of us once the fire is um, taken and Uh, has control over the fire. We're going to have to be able to assess the damage not only to our environment in terms of water quality, runoff, hazard trees, uh, but we're also going to have to start rebuilding in our local communities. There's folks that work in the the service or hospitality industry that rely on tourism. Uh, That's just not happening in the Tahoe Basin now and whether they're going to be able to come back to Tahoe and and have a job. So we're going to really need to work on preserving and restoring our environment, but also um, enhancing and restoring our local economy and our local communities and make sure that anyone that was displaced has the resources that they need to get back to Tahoe and get back on their, get on their feet. Yeah. Thank you so much. Devin Middlebrook, Mayor Pro Tem of South Lake Tahoe. I want to add Cheyenne Purrington into our conversation. She is the executive director of Tahoe Coalition for the Homeless, and she's helping people evacuate from the South Lake Tahoe area. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I think one of the things that many people think of in this kind of evacuation is, okay, pack the car. You're dealing with people oftentimes who don't have a car or don't have a house. So can you tell us, you know, from the perspective of people who are very vulnerable and don't have a lot of money, what does evacuation look like? 
You know, I'm, I'm glad we're bringing attention to this. A lot of our folks that are unhoused may not have a phone, may not have a car. So getting information to them about what the fire was doing, the evacuation orders, and also resources that they regularly depend on that were shutting down because of the evacuation order. It was really important for our team to go and provide that information, provide instructions about how to evacuate, offer transportation options, helping people get their bikes and their personal belongings, and including you know, pets, dogs, we had cats <laughs> following along with our team. Um, we were lucky to have an advance warning that the fire may be heading our way. So we did a lot of work in the few days before the mandatory evacuation orders to ensure that everyone had a personal evacuation plan and that we could provide support to folks that had um, mobility concerns. We had a number of folks who were bedridden who really needed um, either ambulance support or continuity of care once they arrived where they were evacuating to make sure that they had access to medications and things like that. You know, I think in the Bay Area, we tend to think of unhoused people as being uh, a situation that is centered in these urban areas. Is there actually a large population of homeless people in South Lake Tahoe? You know, there is. Our team provides services on a regular basis to over 300 people. We have a lot of folks who are homeless because of the affordable housing crisis. We have seniors who are on fixed incomes and can't afford housing. We also have a lot of folks with mental health challenges and they struggle to get resources uh, for those needs on a regular basis. So of course, during a crisis, it's important to try to access, you know, reach out to those folks in advance, remove barriers that they may be seeing. Um, we have a lot of folks that do camp in rural areas around our community. And so going, sending teams into those encampments to provide outreach was really important for our community to be safe. We're talking about the Calder fire with evacuees and people who are helping other people evacuate. Um, you were just listening to Cheyenne Purrington, executive director of the Tahoe Coalition for the Homeless, who's helping quite vulnerable people get out of the South Lake Tahoe area. And we'd love you to join us with your questions about the fires and evacuations. You know, what do you want to know about what's happening with the Calder fire and what's happening up near South Lake Tahoe? I want to hear from you. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQD Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Raquel Maria Dillon reported with KQED. I want to ask you about the air up there. Um, what, what's it like Oh, it's awful. Um, uh, up until about yesterday afternoon, South Lake Tahoe was just socked in. When I drove up on Wednesday morning, I, you know, you're supposed to have your headlights on um, in a fire zone, uh, and um, I could barely see like 200 feet ahead of me on the road. Um, it was very disconcerting, and it's terrible. Um, I, I keep wondering why don't the firefighters wear N95s or whatever they've got, but um, obviously, when they're on the line working, that's um, they don't think about that because they're working so hard. But um, even, you know, back at the incident command center, you just sort of get used to it. It's awful to think mm. about. But, you know, uh, you get used to it, even it's, though it's just really terrible. Like, is your body like really taking on those effects? Like, how is your head? How is your how are your lungs? Um. I I'm fine. I'm not, you know, wielding a Pulaski axe. <laughs> um, but I do, you know, I get the the smoke headache after a day. Um, and, you know, um, it's uh, I think more about the firefighters um, than than uh, those of us back at base camp. Yeah. Cheyenne Purrington, executive director of Tahoe Coalition for the Homeless. You know, we heard earlier from Mike Perrin from the Tahoe Tribune News that people were locked in their homes, basically, to try and keep out of the bad air. For folks who don't have that option, what are they supposed to do? So we did, our, our street outreach team has gone in every day since the mandatory evacuation. We have special passes to go through the barricades. We've been providing N95 masks that were donated from the Barton Foundation, our local hospital. We've been providing education about respiratory concerns. And a lot of folks, as this emergency progressed, did realize that they were having issues, even if they didn't have underlying conditions. So we were able to engage folks on the first couple of days, and they finally did decide to come to the evacuation centers with us afterwards. And we provided buses so that we could get folks out up to Reno. That, thank you for that. Dana from Santa Rosa, listener, welcome to the conversation. 
Hi. Um, so I was just calling uh, to ask with the Delta variant on the rise in Santa or, or across California, there's been a lack of medical beds and resources, I think. And I was just wondering how that's affected people um, who receive mainly home medical care or do need access to ambulances and hospital beds during evacuations because, you know, fires and evacuees do need massive amounts. I mean, I remember the evacuation centers during the Tubbs fire in 2017. So I was just wondering how Tahoe's been dealing with that and if there are any recommended resources for people to donate to um, to help. Thank you for that. Um, Let's start with you, Cheyenne Prankton, and then come to uh, Devin Middlebrook, Mayor Pro Tem of South Lake Tahoe. Sure. You know, we work really closely with our local hospital throughout the pandemic. We've been focused on diverting high utilizers of emergency systems into housing and services. We were, you know, we received three motels as part of the home key property um, acquisition project. And so that has been very helpful for staffing up and getting folks housed. Those folks that do depend on on healthcare, we um, prioritize them for evacuation first to try to get them over to the Carson City and Reno areas. And I think that's been very helpful to be working closely with all of our healthcare partners. Yeah, just to add on to what Cheyenne was saying, Barton Memorial Hospital um, spent a few days before the mandatory evacuations were in place evacuating all of their um, patients. So they were able to get people out. And We saw the stream of ambulances and, and personnel leaving the hospital and getting those folks to the resources they need for the residents that are living in evacuation centers or where they're at right now. COVID is definitely a concern because they are living in closer quarters and, um, you know, COVID's not really the top priority on your mind when you're worried about your home and anyone that is listening that wants to um, make a donation. I do recommend going to the El Dorado Community Foundation. Uh, they're our, our local community foundation. They're great folks and they have a Calder Fire Fund set up and all of that money goes directly back to the residents, not only in Tahoe, but those affected down by Pollock Pine, Sly Park. Um, and that's eldoradocf.org. Thank you for that. Chai and Prington, how are the folks that you serve holding up? You know, I think this has been incredibly stressful for everyone, but it's especially stressful if you don't have regular information or access to support. One of the things we did was evacuate our entire team over to Carson City and provide housing so that they could continue working. So we have our staff going into the uh, evacuation centers to continue providing support to folks that we provided services to so that they have that continuity of care. And we're working with them already to start planning on what it looks like to repopulate and come back and maintain that stability. We've been talking about the Caldor fire with evacuees and what happens afterwards. We're joined by Raquel Maria Dillon, a reporter with KQED News, Mike Perrin, editor and content director at the Tahoe Tribune News, Cheyenne Purrington, executive director of the Tahoe Coalition Coalition for the Homeless, and Devin Middlebrook, mayor pro tem of South Lake Tahoe. We're going to turn a little bit to think about what happens after the fire. And I want to bring in Brad Sherwood, who lost his home in the Tubbs fire and had a near miss with the Caldor. Welcome to the show, Brad. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So maybe you can first tell us about your experience with the Caldor fire and then we'll kind of work backwards. Uh, Sure. We have a family cabin located uh, near Twin Bridges. We've had it for generations. It's a a treasure for our family, someplace I grew up. Uh, I spent my time on the South Fork of the American Fishing and uh, since the Caldor exploded, um, you know, we, we thought we might lose our second home to a wildfire. Oh, man. How do you think the experience of losing that first home uh, affected you as you faced the Caldor? Well, ever since losing our, our home in the Tubbs Fire 2017, uh, our home was located just north of Santa Rosa, one of the first urban uh, tracks of homes to get lost in that fire, it, it really has changed your outlook on, on everything. Hmm. Um, you know, at the time I had a, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, they've now have, have grown up with being uh, fire survivors. And, you know, you talk about the, you know, the lasting emotional impact of wildfire recovery and um, it's there without a doubt. 
Uh, everything from my, my daughter still keeps her go bag next to her bed with her favorite toys. And anytime there's a warm night with a wind, uh, my son is in our room with us. Mm. So it, there's emotional changes. And then, of course, there's you know, the rebuild uh, challenges as well. Wow. And, you know, are you from this area? Had you experienced this sort of thing as a kid yourself or does this all feel new? I'm a fifth generation Californian and uh, in talking with my family, this all feels very new and specifically in Sonoma County, you know, we've had wildfires before, obviously, but the impact, the devastation, how fast they're moving is, is new. And uh, it has to do with climate change and it has to do with ensuring our communities are prepared and responding. You know, up in uh, by your cabin in near Strawberry, did you after the Tubbs fire, did you take any mitigation measures around the the cabin up there? You know, our cabin is on U.S. forestry property, so we have a 99 year lease. So there's not a whole lot you can do to uh, mitigate for you know trees on on the land. Uh, but we most certainly did clear away. You know, there was an old outhouse, for example, that um, we did get clearance to to move. Uh, you know, needle removal, vegetation that we can do. Uh, most importantly for us, it was, you know, what can we do to, uh, you know, keep our, our family memories uh, safe uh, if a wildfire were to hit. And literally my family were just up there two weeks ago and we have a journal going back. The journal is like a diary. It's got over a hundred pages of family entries every time you go up to the cabin. And I just happened to take a picture of every page of that journal thinking just in case. And uh, I'm glad I did um, not knowing what was just around the corner, the cow door. What would your advice be to someone affected by this fire uh, up by South Lake Tahoe? You know, first and foremost, as a fire survivor, if, if you're impacted and you have to rebuild, first and foremost, take care of yourself. Prepare emotionally for a, a journey of a rebuild ahead. And number two, get to know your insurance policy. Immediately contact your insurance company, understand and know your rights and what your policy includes for rebuilding both content and dwelling. And most importantly, don't be afraid to accept help. Some of us don't necessarily like to accept help in our regular life. It's okay if you're a fire survivor to accept help. And some of the greatest rebuild victories, whether it be actually construction of a rebuild infrastructure or emotionally is accepting and bringing in help. Groups like you'll hear from after the fire, Jennifer Thompson, groups like this do wonders for your community in the rebuild, emotionally and physically. We're talking about wildfire evacuations and what happens afterward. We're joined by an esteemed panel, and we'd love to hear from you. Join us with your questions about the fires and evacuations. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Caldor Fire with evacuees and what happens after a big wildfire sweeps through. We're joined by Raquel Maria Dillon, a reporter with KQED News who's covering the fire for us. Mike Perrin, editor and content director with the Tahoe Tribune News. Cheyenne Purrington, executive director of the Tahoe Coalition for the Homeless. Devin Middlebrook, the mayor pro tem of South Lake Tahoe. And Brad Sherwood, he lost his home in the Tubbs Fire and had a near miss with the Caldor. I want to bring a reader question in. Um, Amos writes, this is for Devin, my question is to the hardworking mayor of South Lake Tahoe, what role do you and other local office holders see for yourselves 
around the long-term threat posed by climate change. Do you see a link between extremely dry and hot weather and the fires? And will you promote the use of renewable energy sources and water conservation in your local community? Yeah, that's a great question. The city of South Lake Tahoe uh, has long been a champion towards fighting climate change and reducing our contributions to um, greenhouse gases being emitted. We were the 26th uh, city in the nation to adopt a 100% renewable energy pledge. That was uh, four years ago. So since then, we have really been working to install solar panels, renewable energy within our community, our airport, all of our hangars have solar panels and, and our, I believe our airport's 90% renewable energy powered. Um, and then last, earlier this year, we adopted an updated climate, uh, climate mitigation strategy. And we've been working on replacing streetlights with LEDs. Uh, we just bought our first fleet uh, electric vehicle for the city to have uh, less fossil fuels there. So the, this fire is, is definitely something that is connected to climate change and the size and scale of the fires we're seeing in the country. And our city has long been and will continue to be um, champions towards um, addressing climate change. Is there anything you're going to have to give up uh, in, the, in the area, in the city, in the tourism around it as a result of climate change or your efforts yeah, to mitigate it? Yeah, the, the impacts of climate change, as we're seeing with the fire, are having massive impacts to our local businesses and, um, and the economy. Um, we are also looking at our winters and our seasons changing. We're getting more rain than snow, uh, and we're getting earlier springs and later falls. So the, the changes around our weather patterns and our seasons is definitely going to impact our tourism and our local businesses moving forward as those um, shifts increase. And it's something that the many partners and agencies and, and locals around the region are, are working on coming up with creative solutions in order to uh, adjust to those changes that we already see happening on the ground today. Cool. I want to add one last voice to our conversation. Um, Jennifer Gray Thompson is the executive director of After the Fire, a nonprofit focused on helping communities rebuild after wildfires. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So what advice might you have for Devin and the other people who have experienced uh, fires around the, the state this year? Well, you know, the first thing is to know is that wildfire recovery comes in many stages. And everyone tells you it's a marathon, but as a recent fire survivor pointed out to me, no one trains you for that marathon. And so what we are, what we do is we go in and we can kind of help support leaders, both official and emergent, as they work towards de-siloing um, from public, private, nonprofit sectors so that everybody's ideas and contributions are at the table. That's the first thing. That, is, that you must do is sort of build upon all of the goodwill that you see during the actual event. Mm -hmm. And that alone will carry you through a huge part of the first year in particular. So how did you come to this work? Did you survive a fire yourself? I did. This is also how I come to know and also really love the work of Brad Sherwood. I was a Sonoma Valley resident in 2017 who woke up in on, on October 8th in the middle of the night and the wildfire was raging all around uh, surrounding Sonoma Valley where I live because we were we bordered Napa and I never knew that that night my life would change entirely and this is all I've worked on since that very evening and I spent the next 10 days in a um, position where we were largely cut off from the county and other resources and we had to do for ourselves and mm -hmm. make sure that we set up food systems and took care of shelters and took care of um, um, undocumented people in a way that was very relevant to what their needs were. And I learned a lot of my base lessons during that time, including the incredible power of humanity in the face of a terrible um, physical, terrifying experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you actually connect up into all the services at the different levels of government? I mean, I, I kind of think of FEMA as the place that would come in, at least if there were a hurricane or something. Is the same thing true with a fire? Well, you know, I thought that too. I, you know, about, I thought, oh, the cavalry will show up and then they'll tell me where to be. But until then, I'll just, I'll just be of use. And then about three days in, I realized that in fact, the community is the Calvary and FEMA's job is really to show up. They usually show up about three days in. Their approach to wildfire has so far been quite different from their approach in um, storms and, and in wind and rain events where they sort of pre-declare an emergency and get on the ground faster. We'd like to see that changed. 
So um, it just depends on the type of event. They are much more they are much more adept at doing wind and rain. So with wildfire, we see that most of the action has to come from the county leadership along with the nonprofit and then emergent leaders. You cannot, emergent leaders are really the secret sauce in how it is that you get through an event, both um, before, during, and after, because you will be dealing with this recovery for years and it will look different a year from now and two years from now. So we're help you, We're there to help communities navigate wildfires through all of those events. And the first thing we do is say, what do you need and how can we help? Because every community is slightly different. Yeah. Thank you for that. I want to bring uh, listener uh, Hitesh from Pacifica into the conversation. Yeah. Welcome. Hi. Um, thank you. The great questions and great conversation going on. I had two-part question, actually. One um, as I understand the recovery and, you know, bringing things or taking people away from harm's way is a lot of manual work. Um, I was wondering how are technologies of today helping out uh, people in this effort? Um, is there anything specific or special, uh, you know, other than Facebook and, you know, just people declaring themselves as I'm safe or I'm in danger, et cetera. Is there any specific help that uh, the teams on this call are getting? from any of the technology companies that, you know, quite often visit Tahoe and enjoy the beauty and all of that stuff. That um, is a great I, question. I was just wanting to, yeah, hear some of the thoughts and how we can actually, I work in tech myself, so I wanted to understand the perspective and what would be like top three areas that are you know, not being addressed or underserved today that people like me can think about um, in the future. Thank you. Yeah. What a great question. Maybe um, Mike? Or if somebody else has uh, something, feel free to chime in. I'm not sure which of you would be the best to address that. I I would probably defer to Devin on that one. That is a a phenomenal question that uh, I think really needs to be addressed. But I'll turn it over to someone better well-equipped. Yeah, it sounds like Jennifer might have some um, tips on this as well. But I know during the actual evacuations, our county, El Dorado County, has a system called Code Red that the city and the county utilize. And it uses geofencing. And you can rope off specific neighborhoods and any phone within that system. Um, got the alerts and the text message updates, as, as Cheyenne was saying. It, it doesn't help all of our vulnerable communities that don't necessarily have access to that, those technologies. And I know the, the fire operation incident team has been using social media um, to get a lot of those updated news and uh, alerts out there. I think we got one other. Uh, Raquel Maria Dillon with KQED also uh, has an answer to this as well. Yeah, I um, the firefighters use infrared technology um, uh, that they fly from airplanes to see where the hotspots are in the fire. Um, there's that. But really, this is very um, analog labor. Um, the bulldozers, axes, um, boots on the ground, um, you know, wildfire uh, boots that these uh, firefighters have been wearing the same models for like decades. And um, the one interesting thing at this point in the fire, the main question that people have is, is my house okay? And there are uh, websites that help folks with that. Um, and uh, I can find some and post them on Twitter later. But, you know, Somebody in in the process of reopening these uh, neighborhoods and, and little towns that have been evacuated, the way it works is somebody from Cal Fire has to go and take a picture of a house uh, or a cabin, and they post that online, and um, people can look on that website. So uh, that's still a very manual process, but at least it's, it is available uh, for people at this point. Brad? And I, I would just oh. add, this is Cheyenne, oh, I would just add that for a lot of the folks that we serve, they don't have regular access to technology. So the best thing for our team has actually been using an arsenal of very basic tools like whiteboards and hmm. post-its. And I know it sounds silly, but during an emergency, you're not sure what technologies might go down. For instance, your reporters uh, were talking about San Francisco's 911 system being down right now. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've learned in our work during, during regular operations is that you can't depend on a system working. You have to assume that it won't. And so what we've done in our contingency planning is assuming that we need a backup to the backup and having a range of tools that we can utilize 
during an emergency so that we can meet the need where people are at. We left notes on people's tents. We left information about evacuations on people's doors, um, on people's cars, on their RVs if they looked like they were unsheltered. And I think that was very effective for overcoming the access to technology and the equity issues that are present. We also had a lot of folks that are Spanish speaking or had other kinds of language barriers. And our team, while we were doing street outreach uh, during the mandatory evacuations, ended up utilizing translation apps. And they downloaded it right there and got the app working and were able to communicate information that way. So I think it's important, especially when we're serving vulnerable folks, to work from that angle and lower barriers to access so that we can get good information to people regardless of their access and continue that throughout the evacuation and repopulation processes. That was Cheyenne Purrington, Executive Director of Tahoe Coalition for the Homeless. Jennifer Gray Thompson, um, Executive Director of After the Fire, how what can people expect in their mobile communications? I've actually always wondered this. Like, do the fires take out the communications infrastructure? Do you lose the ability to text or make calls? Um, or are those things actually fairly hardened to wildfire? They are not hardened. They are much better than they were in 2017 during our wildfires. You have to have a multifaceted approach to analog. So I love what Cheyenne said about how they were actually reaching the unhoused population or people don't, that don't have access to traditional forms of technology. And um, there's also, you have to know that the Latinx population um, is going to only really follow on Facebook trusted organizations and seniors, they really need phone calls and knocks on doors. And so you have to do multifaceted approaches and you cannot count on your cellular network or your wireless network actually working. So if you have that as your sole form of how to communicate, especially in a public sector to get emergency information out, you really need an analog backup model. For your own home and your own family, we highly recommend setting up a family um, radio network, which you can do with two-way radios, which have come down dramatically in price. Um, this is an incredibly important thing that you have multiple levels of communication because that's what's going to keep you safe um, and have that done before the fire. Like we have an entire um, part of our program, which is all about this. And I do want to give a shout out to Scott Adams. Um, he is the one of the deputy directors for broadband, broadband for the state of California. And we had him housed in our organization about 18 months ago for six months studying communication failures in disaster hmm. and what some of the solutions are. So That's very great. multifaceted. I think we have a caller, Patricia, Patricia with uh, a possible other solution. Um, actually, it's very similar. Um, in our community, we have a network of um, CERT, which is Community Emergency Response Team, which is part of a FEMA program, and HAM radio operators. And we are the first responders for the first, let's say, three days before the um, city uh, and county are going to have resources available to go door to door. And we have set up a whole emergency communications network um, via ham radio where we can communicate to the city, to the county. And then we have neighborhoods uh, with FRS radios, which is walkie talkie type radios. So, and we're getting it to where the we're uh, going to be putting up a tower where those radios can reach the whole city, so people can um, communicate with each other, communicate with the city, communicate with the county. Meanwhile, the certs are helping the neighborhoods because, as the call, as the speakers have pointed out, you're kind of on your own for the first while. Hmm. Jennifer Gray Thompson, that seems like. <clears throat> basically the exact kind of multi-level system that you were describing would be resilient in some kind of disaster. Absolutely. But the other thing we'd like to see is for the communications companies to really look into technology about how to, dependent upon the time in the disaster, please don't fly drones during a, an active wildfire. But, you know, there are ways to deploy um, portable Wi-Fi portable cellular networks. These communication companies have the technology. We'd like to see that spread out throughout the entire United States in the same way that we would if we were going into a, a country outside of, the, uh, outside of our country in order to provide foreign aid. A lot of the technologies that we use outside of the United States, we don't deploy inside of the United States in the midst of a disaster. We would really like to see them lean into it. And also people like the caller earlier 
who are in the tech business and solve for communication. Because if you can do that, you can save lives. And if I can also add, there's a story in paradise of a firefighter who was out in the field all day during the campfire for eight hours. He could not reach his wife and his family to find out if they had lived. And they could not reach him to find out if he had lived. And that adds to the multi levels of trauma that it's in a community experiences great trauma after a disaster and during a disaster. So it's really important that we embrace and innovate our way through multi layers of how to deal with these mega fires. And this alone is a critical central piece of what we must do. You know, for communities that are recovering, What's the best way for them to maximize the help that they can get, at least from the federal government? Well, the first thing they have to do is 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 for homeowners themselves have to take some, you know, self reliance and responsibility and start to look at, you know, don't pay off your mortgage right away. You probably don't have to. There's most um, underwriters allowed for you to have one year post disaster. I know Fannie Mae does, so don't get into a panic stage where you're trying to get everything back to the way that what it was before, because the way it was before is um, unfortunately gone. Mm-hmm. And that's very sad. And you can get back to a new way of living. You can reimagine your town. You can reimagine your life, but you will not go back to before the fire. It, it doesn't work that way. FEMA shows up and, and we work with FEMA all the time. They love us because we fill a gap that they simply cannot do. They don't have the bandwidth or the staff to do it. Um, start to talk to your community. Do reach out to your elected officials. Do talk to your local government officials and also your local nonprofits. Community foundations are often wonderful, but you know, ask them. You know, a year or two years post disaster, how are you spending this money that was donated? That's just very important, and don't spend it all right away. Yeah. Uh, make sure you hold some out because recovery is very, very long. Thank you, Jennifer Gray Thompson. We've been talking about the Caldor fire with evacuees and what happens after. Thank you to our guests for this hour, Raquel Maria Dillon, reporter with KQED News, who's covering the fire for us. From South Lake Lake Tahoe, we had Mike Perrin, Cheyenne Purrington, and Devin Middlebrook. And providing advice for after the fires, you heard Jennifer Gray Thompson and Brad Sherwood. Forum is produced by Tina Lauberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Judy Campbell is a lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.